Let's turn together in the Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 15. Verse 1. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him, because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover was, the the feast of the Jews was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed it to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray. Our glorious Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we give you praise that we have this awesome privilege of knowing you, of being in relationship with you, and of being your children whom you love and accept, whom you hear and who you care for and guide. And Father, we ask that this morning that you would instruct us and teach us through the preaching of your word. Father, we ask that what happens would, would be something that transcends what man can do. And we pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to hear your word, your truth that sets us free. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to understand him. Help us to understand what he's doing, what he's saying. Help us to see the relevance of it to our lives today. Father, help us today through the hearing of your word to have a bigger view of you and to to leave here, Lord, praising you and thanking you and being changed by you. And Father, we commit this to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. 
the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John is a chapter that within the Gospel of John stands out in a particularly impressive way. The sixth chapter. And that's saying a lot about this chapter because, as you know, the entire Gospel of John stands out in an impressive way, right? So to say that within... So what we're saying here is that within an already amazing book, we have here a particularly amazing chapter. Why is that the case with the sixth chapter of John? Well, there are at least two reasons. First of all, John chapter 6 contains two unusually spectacular miracles that Jesus performed. The feeding of the 5,000 and him walking on water, which we didn't read, but that's what follows next. Unusually spectacular miracles. Magnificent demonstrations of omnipotence, true? Awesome, even by the standard of the whole Bible, right? So if you scour the Old and the New Testament, you're going to find, yeah, these ones are really at a, at a, at a high level of awesomeness. After the feeding, the crowd itself recognizes this miracle to be on the level with Moses' miracles, right? They say, this is, the, this is the one who's like Moses. Moses gave us bread in the wilderness. Moses did miracles at this amazingly awesome level. Of course, God through Moses. God was using him in that way, and they recognized that same kind of thing in Jesus. Just imagine for a moment if you saw a man praying for the sick, and the sick were healed. And you'd say, wow, that's really impressive. That's really miraculous. But imagine further that you saw that man feed a crowd at the spectrum with a Happy Meal. <laughs> okay? And you say, well, that's just another level. You know, like, this man. So that's one of the reasons why this chapter stands out. You have these unusually spectacular miracles. And secondly, John chapter 6 contains what has sometimes been called the Capernaum Discourse, or a discourse better known as the Bread of Life Discourse. Now, if you're familiar with the Bread of Life Discourse, which comes a little bit later in the chapter and takes up most of the chapter, you know it's one of Jesus' most fascinating and controversial teachings in, the, in all of the Gospels. One of his most fascinating and controversial. And in this discourse, we see that Jesus rather candidly describes the purpose of his coming and the meaning of his death. True? Quite candid, right? I am the bread of life who came down from heaven. And we see that Jesus says that he came into the world, already that's an amazing claim, in order to give his life to lay his life down. He says it right here in John chapter 6. And he laid his life down, he tells us in this discourse, in order to provide life to a life-deprived world. What an amazing claim. I came into the world to give everybody life by laying down my life. So it's controversial. It was controversial then. It's controversial now. And we see in this chapter that many disciples will leave him because of this teaching. This isn't the kind of teaching they just listen and they they can be indifferent about. You know, they can just kind of say, oh, that's interesting, but we'll just keep, keep going here. Even though they'd seen all these miraculous things 
this teaching drives them away and it's, it causes them to stumble and many today continue to stumble at it. So for that reason also, this chapter stands out. It's the combination of these two features that make this chapter particularly impressive. A.B. Bruce, in his classic book, The, Teaching of the, uh, the Training of the Twelve, says this about John 6. The sixth chapter of John's gospel contains, indeed, the history of an important crisis in the ministry of Jesus and the religious experience of his disciples. A crisis, in many respects, foreshadowing the great final one, which happened a little more than a year afterwards, when a more famous miracle, he's referring to Lazarus's being brought from, back from the dead, was followed by greater popularity to be succeeded in turn by a more complete desertion. Everybody who was cheering for him when he came into Jerusalem are not to be found when he's on the trial and even his own disciples are scattered. And to end in crucifixion by which the riddle of the Capernaum discourse was solved and its prophecy fulfilled. So what A.B. Bruce is saying here is that this impressive chapter 6 is essentially a foreshadowing of what's to come. A miracle, popularity, and then offense and stumbling and desertion. It's a microcosm of the coming major crisis, and it's a prophecy and an explanation of the cross. And brothers and sisters, we have much to learn from this sixth chapter. This morning, we're going to be looking, according to what we've read here, just at the first miracle that Jesus performed in this chapter, the feeding of the 5,000, as it's called, as it is recorded by John, the eyewitness. And I would like to ask this morning, what is its relevance to us? What is the relevance of this miracle to us today? Next week, we'll continue on in the chapter, and in the weeks ahead, we'll look at the Bread of Life discourse. I'd like to divide this sermon up into three sections. Number one, first we'll talk about the occasion of the miracle. Secondly, the miracle and its meaning. And thirdly, the crowd's response to this miracle. So first of all, the occasion of the miracle. In order to truly appreciate what is going on here, we need to understand the historical situation that brought it about. So look with me again at verse 1. John writes that after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. Now what is these things that he has in mind? Well, it seems plain enough. He's referring to the events in chapter 5, which we talked about over the last few weeks. This trial of the ages. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's being charged with blasphemy and he defends his identity, and he calls forth witnesses to defend who he is. It's a court case. He's not just saying, well, you should just be gullible and believe me, right? It's not spiritual to look for evidence. uh, That's not what religion is about. Religion is not ultimately about objective truth. Religion is really just about subjective feelings. That's not what chapter 5 is about is saying at all, right? It's a court case because he's saying, look, you're accusing me of blasphemy and I'm going to defend myself objectively with witnesses so you can see who I am. So that's what we've come from. And then we see Jesus in Galilee and that's surprising. 
In the Gospel of John, this is one of the few places in the Gospel of John where Jesus' activity in Galilee is focused upon. As you remember, almost everything else in the Gospel of John is focused on Jesus in Jerusalem. John follows the feasts, follows Jesus at the feasts. John is concerned not to give an overview of the ministry of Jesus, not to give a, a broad historical survey of all that Jesus did like the Synoptic Gospels are. But John is focusing on the heart of his conflict with the religious nerve center of Israel, with the Pharisees, with the leadership. And so he focuses on the theological crux of the matter. And so we see Jesus in Jerusalem almost all the time. So why this episode is the question. Why does John in John chapter 6 focus on Jesus in Galilee where everywhere else it's Jesus in Jerusalem? Why is this the exception to the rule? Well, I think we might say, first of all, that obviously this story is important and relevant to John's purpose in revealing the essential identity and message of Jesus. That's what John wants us to see is who is the word? Who is Jesus, the word who became flesh? And what is his message? And this obviously uh, is important to John in revealing that. Another reason why John records this is that we see that this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is indispensable to understanding Jesus. And this is why all the Gospels record this miracle. And in fact, friends, this is the only miracle besides the resurrection that all the Gospels record. You won't find one other miracle that all four Gospels record, except for the resurrection, but this one, the feeding of the 5,000. So it's extremely important, obviously, to who Jesus is, and John therefore can't omit it. John, however, is the only gospel writer who explains it. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it happen, and then they move on. John tells us that Jesus performed this miracle and then proceeded to teach about himself being the bread of life. So John records it in order to get to the essence or the crux of what really is going on with this miracle. Verse 2. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Now, we've encountered this crowd before. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 23. We've got a large crowd following Jesus because they're impressed by the miracles that he's performing. Chapter 2, verse 23. This is Jesus in Jerusalem at the Passover. Verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. So Jesus got a lot of attention and a lot of following because of the miracles. But verse 24 tells us that Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So this is an interesting thing. A crowd follows Jesus, truly impressed by him, thinking, man, this man is from God. Nicodemus says in the next passage, we know you're a teacher sent from God. No one could do the miracles unless God were with him. And Jesus isn't impressed by that. Isn't that interesting? Maybe, maybe our, you know, maybe the word standard's not the right word, but 
Maybe our standards are so low these days because of so much irreligion in our country that we're actually impressed when people get religious, you know? Because we see all this atheism and liberal, and we're impressed when someone gets religious. You know, wow, they're interested. They believe in God. They believe in miracles these days. And Jesus isn't impressed by it. He's got these people following him, believing he's from God. And according to this verse, he's saying, they're mannish, right? What they're doing is not really of God. It's still savers of the things of man, and I'm not entrusting myself to them because I know what's in the heart of man in all of this. It's interesting. And so Jesus was hugely popular, but we see that not all who followed him were really following him, right? And it's the same today. And we, we proclaim this as, as the Christian church in a world where many people claim to follow Jesus. Many people claim to be disciples of Jesus, and yet they are not really disciples of Jesus. There are huge crowds that are impressed by Jesus and even claim him to be of God or the Messiah or a prophet. And what do we do with that as Christians? Do we just say, hey, that's great. Anyone who says Jesus is great is on my team. Or do we say, well, what's going on in your heart, right? What's, what is your connection with Jesus here? What is your understanding of him? People are still today enamored by the miracles of Jesus. Whether they be the historical miracles of Jesus, that is, someone in the 21st century can be reading the Bible or studying history, and they can believe that Jesus performed healing miracles or fed the 5,000 or even rose from the dead. And they can say, wow, this man is from God. And they can then give their allegiance to him and follow him and not really know who Jesus is. Or they could be impressed by contemporary miracles of Jesus. That's widespread today as well. So you have miracles that occur today, right? Whether they're true or false, you have reports of miracles that uh, occur today. I think a lot of them are true, actually. In my own life, when I was 16 years old, I experienced something very miraculous, and I became very devoted to who I thought was Jesus and to God, very zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. And so you have a lot of people today who, um, they're impressed by the miraculous, just like these people. And that's okay, you know. Yes, we recognize in Jesus divinity. We recognize in him God at work. And we also recognize rightly in him that here's someone who can help me and bless me. You know, he can do miracles, then he could heal me, or he could save me. This is good. But it's still not enough if we're not listening and if we're not heeding the actual message of Jesus. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. And he didn't just teach that the kingdom of God was real and the kingdom of God was coming and that you could enter the kingdom of God. He didn't just teach that. He taught us also how to enter the kingdom of God. He taught us what is required to enter the kingdom of God. And he made it perfectly clear, didn't he? He said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what you need to do is you need to put all other concerns in your life as as secondary 
and you need to seek first God's kingdom. That needs to be primary concern in your life. And you need to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what you need. And Jesus taught lots of parables that the righteous will be the ones who inherit the kingdom of God and the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's not just a messing a message of there is a blessing from God that you can have. And that's true, there is. But Jesus teaches us how to get that blessing. You need to be righteous. And he teaches us that that is a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, Jesus over and over again teaches people that that standard of righteousness is actually perfection. Just think about it. What must I do, Jesus, to inherit the kingdom and eternal life? What does Moses say? He says to keep the commandments. Here's the commandments. Okay, you lack one thing, so you're not going to get in. Right? He wasn't saying to that rich young man, you're set, you know, you've kept all these things from your youth, you're in. Let me just point out one thing that you need to kind of improve on in the time being, but you're really okay. He's telling that rich young ruler, you've kept all these things, you lack one thing, you're not going to make it. Which is why the disciples said, who then can be saved, <laughs> right? If that's the standard, Jesus, who can be saved? So my question is for this world and all these crowds that follow Jesus, are you listening to what Jesus is saying? Or are you just impressed by the miraculous, the fact that he is from God, the fact that he brings blessing and promises blessing? Are you listening to what he's saying about what is required to enter the kingdom of heaven? The fact of the matter is, Jesus is pessimistic about man's righteousness. True? That's what you get from his teaching. He's not optimistic about man being righteous and entering the kingdom of God. He's repeatedly deflating people's optimism that they're going to make it according to their own righteousness. He is not optimistic about what man can do, but he is optimistic about what God could do. He didn't just come into the world to throw a wet blanket on everybody, right, and say, there's a blessing and you can't have it because you're not perfect, right? There's a blessing and he continually taught us you can have it, but you need to realize how you can get it and it's not going to be through your own righteousness and through your own obedience to the law. It's going to be, as he taught over and over and over again, through faith in me. That's how you're going to get in. That's how you're going to receive eternal life. Are you listening? Well, obviously this crowd wasn't. Because we see as we go on in chapter 6, as impressed as they are already by his miracles and as super impressed as they're going to be by the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus proceeds to tell them that they need to believe in him in order to receive eternal life, they say, we're out of here, right? This isn't the idea that we have. Let it not be said of any one of us that we have failed to truly follow Jesus, that we have failed to heed his actual message. Let it not be said of any one of us that we just got excited about Jesus as the Messiah and the blessing he could give and we totally missed this message of righteousness and faith in him. Verse 3. John chapter 6, verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. 
Scholars are unanimous. This is the east side of Galilee and today the Golan Heights. Just for a little historical note, geographical note, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Now why does John tell us this? Now we can either take this as a bare chronological fact that John is just simply telling us, you know, the Passover was near. Interesting. Does that have any relevance to this story? No. It's just interesting. Or... We can see that there is a connection here between the nearness of the Passover and the miracle that Jesus performs. In fact, in my Bible, verse 5, and I know some of your Bibles won't, won't make this clear, but other Bibles will, there's a connection between verse 4 and 5. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes, and seeing the large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, etc. So Jesus actually initiates this miracle in light of the fact that the Passover is near. Now what's the connection? I'd like to ask a question for you Bible buffs. What is the main difference between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000? Uh, are you familiar with the feeding of the 4,000? So you know that the, the, all the Gospels record the feeding of the 5,000, and Matthew and Mark record another feeding, the feeding of the 4,000. And my question is, have, have you noticed in your Bible reading what the major or main difference is between these two feedings? And it's not the size. Oh, <laughs> it's not the size. No, it's, it's not the size. You know, obviously 5,000 in one, 4,000 in another, five loaves and two fish in one, seven loaves and two fish in another, 12 baskets afterwards, seven baskets at the end. You know, those are all differences and they're important. Um, but what's the main difference? No, I, I've heard that, but I don't think that's, I, I don't even, I don't believe that's quite true, but... Um, I'm thinking of something else. and I, Here's the main difference, and you can check this out uh, on your own time and in your own study. The main difference between the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 is necessity. In the feeding of the 5,000, there's actually no necessity for Jesus to feed them. The disciples, if you compare all four Gospels, actually tell Jesus, hey, you know, we should probably send these people away so that they can get some food. If we wait too much longer, it's going to be kind of a crisis. So let's send them away. Right? They, all, they all think that's the, that's the thing they should do. So there isn't a necessity for Jesus to feed them. They could be taken care of by sending them away. But if you look at the feeding of the 4,000 in both accounts, Jesus himself says, you know, I have compassion on these people. They've been with me three days. If we send them away, they're going to faint on the way. It's not going to be good. And so in the, in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus says, we have to feed them. But in the feeding of the 5,000, what we see here is that Jesus performs this miracle not by necessity, but by free design. He initiates. He freely chose to do this. 
This miracle is brought to the situation by Jesus. It is not brought out of him by the situation. And this is important because what it shows us is that this miracle is meant to accomplish something beyond meeting their physical hunger. There's something else Jesus is getting at with this miracle. It's not just we need to feed them. We don't need to feed them, but I'm going to feed them because I want to teach them something. This is a purposeful, a didactic miracle, a teaching miracle to teach them about the true bread that comes down from heaven and by teaching them that, to sift this crowd, to challenge this crowd and their understanding of who he is. And so here's the connection with the Passover. Jesus, recognizing that the Passover is near, a time of especially high nationalistic and messianic fervor where the nation is at the peak of their uh, looking for the Messiah, looking for deliverance, right? That's what Passover is all about. Looking for God to act and intervene. And Jesus says, these people need to learn the truth about who I am and the truth about what they really need. And so knowing this, he initiates this miracle. So that brings me to my second section, the miracle and the meaning of the miracle. Let's look at verse 5. This is where it gets very interesting. Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Now, throughout the Bible, you've probably noticed this, God often asks questions, right? And it's not because he's actually ignorant when he asks those questions. Adam, where are you? He knew. Cain, where's your brother? He knew. Philip, where are we going to feed him? He knew. It's not because he's ignorant, but because, as verse 6 says, he was testing him. He knew what he was going to do. We ought to examine God's questions carefully since they're crafted by one who is perfectly wise. Is this question pessimistic or optimistic? So is Jesus looking at the situation and saying, where are we going to buy bread, Philip, so that these can eat? I don't see it. Or is it optimistic? There's a place to buy bread. Where are we going to do it? What do you think? Optimistic, right? Jesus knows what he's going to do, and he knows there's a place where they can get bread because Jesus knew the power and the ability of God. Amen? Jesus knew what God could do. So Jesus knew the place to get bread. It was God. And Jesus knew he was going to feed them, and so he was optimistic when he asked Philip, where are we going to get bread, Philip? And he was testing Philip to see if Philip shared his optimism. Do you see, Philip, what we can do? Of course, he knew Philip wouldn't share his optimism, and he wanted to teach Philip and us a lesson. But my question is, what is the extent of the lesson that Jesus wants to teach Philip? What is the extent of this lesson? Is it just that he wants to teach Philip that God is able to provide bread in the wilderness? 
Now, we know that lesson from the Old Testament, don't we? The people of Israel in the wilderness learned that lesson. Even though Philip needed, obviously, to learn that lesson again. Yes, that's a lesson Jesus wanted Philip to learn, but it doesn't stop there. Is it just, Philip, you need to know something. God can provide bread in the wilderness. Or is it something infinitely more than that? This phrase, by bread, and in verse 27, if you look with me in verse 27 of chapter 6, Jesus says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. These two phrases, buying bread or working for food, and Jesus obviously moves towards the, takes these things into the bread of life discourse, are unmistakable echoes of Isaiah 55 where it talks about buying food and bread, doesn't it? Why do you labor for bread that doesn't satisfy? Why do you buy that which doesn't fill you? Listen, and your soul will live, and I'll make an everlasting covenant with you. I believe Jesus is pointing to something far deeper below the surface of this physical need that they have, I believe Jesus is pointing to what the Old and New Testaments are pointing to, and that is the need for that which brings eternal life. A bread that doesn't perish. A bread that that doesn't leave you unsatisfied. A bread that you receive in which you never hunger again and you have it unto eternal life. In other words, the need for Christ himself, the need for righteousness, the need to enter into the, the kingdom of God and eternal life. You need this bread. And might not Jesus be subtly asking, brothers and sisters, to fill up beyond just the surface, which is a true need? Where, where are we going to buy bread for all these people? Might he be asking also, where are all these people going to receive righteousness and eternal life? Where are we going to get that from? That's a big question, isn't it? And I believe Jesus is doing this to teach that lesson. Verse 7. Philip is strongly pessimistic. 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. And I don't think this is Philip speaking from a place of, of real calculation, but really just a place of shock. He looks at the crowd. He looks at the money they have. He looks at the work that would be required to feed all these people. And he says, your question is absurd, Jesus. From the perspective of human ability, your question is absurd. And I think Andrew, too, in verse 8, when he comes with the, uh, the lad's loaves, I think he's probably laughing about it. Like, well... Here's some food. But what's this? Now, I'd like to make this point, and this is the most important point of my sermon. There is such a thing as good pessimism. Do you believe that's true? It would have been ridiculous for Philip to be optimistic about this situation from the human perspective, wouldn't it? So imagine if Jesus said, where are we going to buy 
food for all these people, and he's not thinking about God, he's just thinking about man, and he goes, well, I suppose what I could do is I could gather up all the money that we have, and I could run to town, get a job, uh, I could work for a few months, I, I, I mean, maybe they could hold on, you know? It would be ridiculous for him to be optimistic from a human perspective. So Philip has, in a sense, a good pessimism when he's considering the situation from a human perspective. It's an absurd request if we're considering this uh, from what man can do. But there's a similar absurdity in the deeper matter of righteousness. Instead of a healthy pessimism when it comes to human righteousness, in this world there's a ridiculous optimism. True? A ridiculous optimism. So God says, you need to be righteous in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, I suppose if I increase my efforts, uh, double down, attend church more, read more self-help books, pray more, fence, make fences around the commandments, you know, spend more time in fellowship, uh, I suppose I could do it at some point, maybe. Or another very common optimism that people throw in there is that they say, well, you know, yeah, it doesn't look too optimistic in this life, but, but I have an infinite amount of time to work on this thing, so I'm optimistic in what I can do. Have you ever heard that? I'm optimistic about what I can do because I have an infinite amount of time, not realizing that it's appointed once for men to die and after that to face God on Judgment Day. Philip recognized the situation. Look, there's no way we can feed these people. They need food now. They're not going to get it from us, from a human perspective. And brothers and sisters, there's a holy pessimism that this world despises. Right? Uh, There's a holy pessimism that this world despises. The world, the uh, the non-Christian world, hates to recognize their limits. Isn't that what society is mad about these days? I mean, you can see it reflected in the, in the natural world and the sciences as well, right? We just, we don't like limits. We want to be able to do basically whatever we want. We don't want anyone to be able to say, you can't. It's not possible. We don't like to admit defeat or failure. The world promotes an indefatigable or tireless optimism in man. And you hear it with phrases like, you can do anything that you want if you put your mind to it, right? Or similar phrases like that. And they they get upset with you if you suggest otherwise. When when Brad and I go on campus and talk to people, one of the most common things I hear is when I tell people, you're unrighteous, you're a sinner, you're guilty, and you're not going to be righteous by what you do. And they look at me like, why would you be so pessimistic? Why would you... um, That's so depressing. That means there's no hope. God is the God of hope, right? So why would you throw that wet blanket on me? I wish there were more people like Philip when they consider their situation as a man or as a woman under the requirement of righteousness And when they consider man's ability, I wish they would look at the whole situation and say, it's not going to happen, right? Charles Spurgeon says, it's a holy thing to be a sinner. A holy thing to be a sinner. And what he meant by that was not sinning is holy. (laughs) 
what he means is to recognize you're a sinner, to own that, to say, I am a sinner. That is a holy thing in this world. That's, a, that's an uncommon, rare, set-apart thing to say, I am a failure. Philip's pessimism in man is wise, it's healthy, it's good. The problem with Philip here is he lacked an optimism, the optimism in God. He had only a man's perspective in this situation. He didn't also have the divine perspective. He failed to see what Jesus could do. And brothers and sisters, God never calls us to an ultimate pessimism, but to true, pessim- to true optimism in him. He wants us to be people of hope and confidence and indefatigable, tireless optimism, but that optimism is in the right place. It's in him, not in ourselves. That's what Christianity is about. Jesus shows us authentic optimism in the power of God here in verse 10 when he tells the people to sit down and he prepares them to eat. There was probably over 10,000 people there. That's a conservative estimate because Matthew chapter 14 tells us there was women and children there as well. There's a huge crowd. And Jesus is optimistic in God saying, sit down and I'll feed you. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves having given thanks He distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as many as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over. Now contrast that with what Philip said just a moment ago. If we worked and had two hundred denarii, we could feed everyone just a little and Jesus feeds them, and it says there's, there was so much left over. Everybody was stuffed, and there was excess. H.G. Weston comments, he breaks the bread, and with a harvest fullness, feeds 5,000 with the food of five. With a harvest fullness. It was like the harvest had come in. One poet says, "'Twas springtime when he blessed the bread, "'twas harvest when he broke." And even the liberal Rudolf Boltman says, after all have been satisfied, there is more left over than there was at the beginning. This is an awesome display of the power of God versus the impotence of man. How does this apply to us in the 21st century? How does this apply to us as Christians? What is its relevance for us today? Well, I think its relevance is clear in light of the bread of life discourse. Can we not say, brothers and sisters, that although you and I and this world is completely devoid and deprived of the righteousness that God requires, and there's no hope of us attaining it. We look at the situation, we don't have the righteousness that we need, and we aren't going to get the righteousness that we need by what we do. We're like Philip. Even though we see that situation clearly, God has in his love provided an overflowing and superabundant righteousness to meet all of our need in Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? Do you think that's the message that Jesus wanted to convey when he performed this miracle? I do. I don't think it was just, you need to know that God can provide bread in the wilderness. He's leading to something deeper. You need to know that God can provide eternal life to you through me superabundant and overflowing. On the cross, Jesus took all of our sin 
Not some of it, not most of it. He's not saying, let me take the lion's share of it and you do a little bit after. He took it all and he fully satisfied the wrath and the justice of God by paying the penalty that we deserve. And through his chastisement and through him being bruised for our iniquities, for my iniquities, for your iniquities, let's make it personal because it really is. God is able to justify you, to forgive you, and to give you that righteousness that you cannot obtain through your own works. And you can say, you know, you can look at yourself and say, man, I am really too bad of a sinner. 200 lifetimes of striving couldn't even give me a little righteousness. And Jesus says, just sit down, right? Stop, don't freak out about it. You may look at the need You know that God is holy and righteous, but just sit down and let Jesus provide for you that which you need. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 tells us that where sin sin abounded, grace all the more, much more abounded. So you see the sin in your life, you see the absurdity of you being righteous by your own works, The message of the Bible is God loves you so much, he's provided for you a a super abounding righteousness in the grace of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. How much do you want? How much do you need? It's all there and more. Though you're pessimistic about what you can do, have an optimism and a hope and a confidence in what Jesus can do and do for you. I like this comment by G. Campbell Morgan. When Jesus gets down to business... It is not a snack that tantalizes, but a meal that satisfies. So I believe without detracting from the glory of this miracle when he fed people with bread, that the deeper lesson Jesus wants us all to learn here is this message that he provides for us the bread of life and righteousness in the face of what is humanly impossible. The Passover is coming up they need to realize and we need to realize that the deliverance of Israel depends upon something far more than just a victorious leader riding in. Apart from the considerations of this need that we have, the deliverance of Israel depends upon the suffering lamb to meet our deepest need. And if you don't know this, then you don't know the Messiah and you don't know what the Passover is all about and you don't know what God is who God is, and you're following him, and it's a sham. Finally this morning, the crowd's response to this miracle. Let's look at verse 14 and 15 as we close. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So they recognized, truly this is the prophet. Were they right? They were definitely right. And that was exactly what this sign was showing. He is the one who was like Moses who come into the world. And yet, verse 15, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So they rightly recognized him. He is the one who provided bread in the wilderness like Moses, and therefore he is the one who will deliver us. But they didn't understand him for they pushed to, to make him king. And as we go on in the chapter, as I've said, when he finally does teach about who he really is, they abandon him. 
and so many today do. They don't see the need for the cross. They want to go straight to the kingdom. Bring the blessing down upon our righteousness, Jesus. That's what they're thinking. We're already here. We're already doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're essentially good. We're essentially acceptable. The Messiah has come. Let's get the kingdom going. Let's get the ball rolling. And Jesus walks away from that. He will have no part in that because that savors of the things that be of man and not the things that be of God. This is like Peter saying, no, Lord, you won't die. This is like the devil in the wilderness saying, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, nope, that's not of God. That's of man. That's of darkness. That's bypassing the true issue of righteousness. The problem here is not that they were looking for a kingdom or a king. I contend that the essential problem with Judaism is not in what the blessing looks like. That's not, that's not the, the beef we Christians have with, with, the, with Judaism, right? We're not saying, you know, you, you, you Jewish readers of the Bible have it all wrong. You're looking for the wrong blessing. I don't believe that's what is going on here. But what they have wrong is how they think they're going to obtain it. How do you get that blessing? And Judaism says, through obedience to the law, which is something we can do, it's not absurd. And Christianity says, that's absurd. We can't do it. We're like Philip in our response. It's not going to work. But we're not like Philip in our response in that we say, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus doesn't walk away saying, your problem is that you're looking for a king to reign on David's throne and make all your suffering go away. Of course they should have looked for that, according to the scriptures. But your problem is that you fail to understand your own unrighteousness and need for God to provide you a righteousness that's not from yourselves. I mean, do you remember Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6, and 33, verse 16? A king will reign upon the throne. And with him will come all the blessings that we're all looking for. And this will be the name that he is called. The Lord, our righteousness, right? So he's going to reign, he's going to bring blessing, but let's understand who he is and why that blessing can come because he is the Lord, our righteousness. And that's what the problem is here. The very first, there's three Passovers in the Gospel of John. The first Passover, we saw Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple and says, you know, you at your religious best are an offense to God. The second Passover is is near here, and Jesus is therefore teaching them, and John and the other Gospels recognize this is an indispensable moment in the ministry of Jesus because, number one, the feeding of the 5,000 proclaims that he is the Messiah like Moses, but it also corrects and sifts that crowd and is meant to teach them their need to be pessimistic about man and optimistic about God when it comes to righteousness. And then the third Passover, which we'll, which we'll see eventually, is the Passover, and I quote Edmund Clowney, where Jesus would go to Jerusalem not to wield the spear and bring the judgment, but to receive the spear thrust and bear the judgment. 
He goes to Jerusalem for us in order to provide for us that righteousness, that bread, that life by dying for us. Are we heeding, are you heeding the teaching of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the meaning of Jesus? Or like these crowds, are you just excited about the concept of blessing, the divinity of Jesus, and missing the point that he came into the world to lay his life down for you? May we learn the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000, which is to have a holy pessimism, a healthy and holy pessimism in the ability of man and to have a tireless optimism in God. And I just want to tell you again, because we can't hear it enough, Jesus loves you and he cares for you. I mean, if he cared for these people in the feeding of the 4,000, he says, I have compassion on them. They're going to fall down if we send them away. And this was that mixed up crowd, this misguided crowd. He still cared for them. How much more does he care for us to provide for us our essential need? And this is what we proclaim in the gospel of the good news. Jesus loves you, sinner, even though you don't deserve it, even though you are a rebel, even though you do deserve the spear thrust in your own heart. Jesus came to take that for you because he loves you, he cares for you, and he provided this for you in his death. He died for you. Remember that this morning. That's his purpose for coming, so that you could be blessed because he doesn't want you to perish. That's why he came. If you're not a Christian, I pray that you would recognize that this morning. You would see the absurdity of trusting in your own works. You would see God's standard, that it is perfection, and that you would discover in Christ all that you need for eternal life. And if you are a Christian this morning, I think most of us are, let us rejoice in the abundance of righteousness that Christ has provided for us. Let's rejoice that he didn't do some of it or most of it, right? That he did all of it for us. He gave us a meal. He invited us to his table and he said, eat. It's yours, it's free, and it's filling. It will do what you need. Let's rejoice and let's be thankful to him daily and let's proclaim together where our real hope lies, where our optimism is, not in human beings and what we can do, but in the power and the love of God. Let's stand together and give God thanks. Lord, we thank you for these records of your mighty deeds and how they teach us. They teach us about ourselves and about you for our good. And Lord, we just want to say again, thank you so much for considering us and not casting us aside like you could have. We thank you again this morning for the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to justify us and present us blameless before the judgment seat of God. Thank you for eternal life and the death of Christ. And Lord, we pray that as Christians we would be quick to recognize that wicked an unholy optimism in what man can accomplish and do 
And Father, we pray that we would be lights in this world of proclaiming true hope and the true power of God. Thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. And we pray these things in your precious son's name. Amen.